Hi, and welcome to the latest 2020 Trustee of Expert Views podcast series. Today, we're going to talk about direct lending as an asset class. Now, it's quite common to hear about CDI and illiquid assets, but we're really going to use this podcast to dig under the bonnet of direct lending as a very interesting and frankly useful asset class for, for pension scheme journeys. And to help me do this, I've got Chris Austin from Mercer, Ian Ferrand from LCP, and Mike Dennis from Aries Asset Management. Thank you all for joining me. Chris, if you don't mind me, if you don't mind, I'll start, I'll start with you and we'll get right into the question of, of value. So what, why do you think pension schemes should consider investing in private debt? Thanks, Nadine. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, as you alluded to there, what we're talking about here today is, is private debt. So, so loans that are um, negotiated privately with, with companies. And so in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's got similar characteristics to public market debt that, that pension schemes will, will already know and, and, and have, have exposure to. Um, but it's about introducing a, a different part of the market, which you don't, you don't necessarily achieve in your corporate bond portfolio or your high yield debt portfolio. Um, so I guess the first thing to say is that, you know, we, we believe there is a return premium associated with holding private market investments. And so for pension schemes that are able to uh, absorb some illiquidity and manage some illiquidity in their investment portfolio, we, we think there are attractive opportunities out there to, to potentially pick up a bit more, bit more yield in what we all know is a low yield, low yield world. Um, a couple of other things that we, we, we kind of like about private debt, I guess by, you know, by their very nature, we're talking about a different opportunity set here, as, as I said. So there is an, a natural element of diversification in that you're gaining exposure to companies and, and potentially industries that you don't already hold in, in your portfolio. And another key point that you know, we like and we think is, is going to be helpful for pension schemes is the, the cash flow characteristics of, of private debt. Uh, and, and we think that you know, there's, a, there's a lot of consistency there with the obligations that pension schemes make in terms of pension payments. Um, you know, as, as schemes continue to mature and continue to have the challenge of meeting a, you know, greater cash flow demand, we think an asset class like private debt, which has a regular coupon and, and, and distributions, can fit really neatly into those, those runoff portfolios or those cash flow driven portfolios that you talked about, Nadine. Thanks, Chris. I mean, and indeed, it does sound like a really good fit in terms of characteristics with, with pension funds. And Mike, if you don't mind me asking, how, I mean, how would you, additive to, to the points that Chris made, how would you summarise the, the, the key benefits of direct lending for, for pension schemes? Yeah, let, let me pick up on a couple of points that, that Chris alluded to. First, first is the premium, I think, that you can get from this asset class relative to, to other fixed income products. I mean, the yields that we're tending to get on our assets are high single digits. We're also generating high upfront fees because we're self-originating these assets. So there is a lot of cash flow driven and generated from the underlying uh, asset. When you compare that to, to fixed income, I had a look back at 2020 as a whole, and the yields that we're generating in direct lending are around 400 basis points as a premium to, to the European Loan Index and around 600 basis points to high yield. So that, that premium is, is, is definitely there and actually has been sustained over quite a period of time. I guess the other point I would make is that as an asset class, there's very low levels of volatility, which is another, I guess, differentiator from, from the fixed income portfolio. Okay, thanks Mike for that. Ian, I might actually talk to you about, or ask you a question about um, how it fits in with funding valuations later on. 
Um, but but actually, you know, private lending, actually any asset class is really just part of a tool set um, to help school schemes along their journey. H how do you think investment in private debt impacts journey plans for pension funds? Yes, I mean, I, th I think, you know, I completely recognise the potential benefits that, um, that Chris and Mike have raised um, and, and can certainly see that for many pension schemes, it could be really attractive for those reasons. I think before investing, it is just important to think about your journey plan to your long term destination, you know, for example, buyout and, and the timeline for reaching it. Uh, I think, as mentioned, you know, there is a these funds operate over a timeline that you know, brings illiquidity challenges into it, so typically a sort of five to seven year term, and there's limited space to, to redeem those, those investments early. Um, so I think, you know, if you're the sort of scheme who's expecting to be running the scheme on an ongoing basis for many years, then that liquidity um, challenge, it's like illiquidity challenge, is, is not necessarily a big issue. And actually the benefits described, particularly the yield pickup versus kind of more conventional credit type assets, um, could be really attractive and can ultimately help you get to your end game quicker. Um, but I do think it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, it's certainly in the current environment, it seems like there's a, a, a more significant chance nowadays that your long-term objective and indeed your expected timeline for hitting that objective may change over time. Um, you know, for example, look at uncertainty in markets in, in recent times and, and significant swings we've seen over the last 12 months. You know, I've seen a number of clients go from thinking that their long term journey plan looks like a 10 year plus one to thinking actually that with a fair wind, it could be, you know, five years away. Uh, and I think that coupled with increased uncertainty around long term covenants, um, which, you know, given the, the post pandemic and post Brexit world means we may see schemes and trustees wanting to accelerate journey plans and, and sort of take action now whilst they still have a, a covenant seen behind the business, I think means that there is sort of moving dynamics that could change the picture. And a good example is the emergence of consolidators. So I think you know, whilst it's still in its infancy as a market, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of clients starting to consider that as an alternative to buy out. Um, and I think, you know, particularly where there's uncertainty about longer term covenants again I think it just kind of you know it might be that schemes find their circumstances changing rapidly and so I think being cognizant of that risk up front is really important I guess my overall message is just sort of think not just about what your journey plan looks like today but think about how your journey plan might change over time as circumstances change um, you know you don't want to be locked into something that may potentially be, be, be a barrier to securing members' benefits earlier than you might have otherwise expected. Uh, so just you know, look before you leap is kind of, I guess, my key message in terms of thinking through your journey plan. Absolutely. And I guess weighing up the, 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 the limitations that you may impose on, on your journey plan um, against the benefits that, that you can get, both the cash flow benefits and the, and the premium benefits you get, that you get from this type of asset class is, in, is important. It's really interesting that you talked about consolidators because clearly the, the, the type of investment strategy that some of those consolidators um, use actually overlap with, with this type of asset class. So there probably is potentially a conversation to be had around whether some of those assets could, could move over and we'll probably come to that later on anyway. Um, Chris, do you mind if we move over to demand for a second? Because it seems to me that, you know, the demand for this type of asset class has increased pretty rapidly over the last kind of 24 months or so from a pension scheme perspective, even though, frankly, this asset class has been available since probably what, 08, 09, when banks stopped lending to, 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 to the middle market businesses uh, after the financial crash. I mean, how commonly is private debt used in pension schemes? Uh, it's, it's a good question, Nadim. Um, and I think, I think partly um, the asset class has just become more common as trustees and the industry 
uh, has begun to, begun to break down some of the myths around investing in private markets and are starting to see it as a kind of core asset class in, you know, in their armory. Um, I think one of the things that I'd highlight is that we, we do an asset allocation survey each year to give us some perspectives on trends in terms of investor allocations for specifically for pension schemes. Um, and when we look at private debt, we have seen a steady increase uh, in the number of clients that are uh, allocating to, to private debt. Uh, and in the latest survey, we, we found that around one in six pension schemes now has an allocation. Um, and so then looking forward, you know, I think that that trend will continue and we'll continue to see, see more pension schemes consider it and ultimately invest in, in private debt. Um, and the key reason being, as we alluded to earlier on, is that it does fit so well with um, you know, those schemes that want to have a contractual cash flow um, structure, a, a CDI portfolio or running off as the different terms that we might use. Um, and so it really helps with that, that cash flow point that we, that we mentioned earlier. So, you know, as we continue to see pension schemes mature, hopefully see the funding positions improve, I, I just expect we'll see more clients look to glide into portfolios, which include things like private debt and, and other growth fixed income assets. Um, and so, you know, that, those portfolios will still contain a, a core allocation to, you know, hedging instruments and, and, and investment grade credit. But pension schemes may still have an ambition to, to buy out in the future or to continue to improve uh, uh, the funding position in a steady way and adding something like private debt does give you that incremental return to help you, um, you know, gradually continue to improve the position. Um, as, as, a, as, as I guess as an example, you know, certainly when we're asked to help clients on a, on a delegated basis in terms of that designing what that long-term portfolio might look like, private debt is a, is a key component of, of that runoff portfolio. That's fascinating, Chris, and, and that one in six pension funds having an allocation to private debt is, is, is a very interesting stat to, to, to think about. Um, I mean, Mike, uh, I, do, I do find when having conversations out there that there, there are still some, I guess, either myths that need to be busted or, or some barrier to fully understanding uh, what goes on inside these portfolios. I, I wonder whether you can help kind of uh, educate us on, on some, of those, some of those myths and maybe help us kind of get over them. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think there are still a couple of myths around what direct lending is and the types of companies we're investing in. I think one of the main myths is that, you know, we're carrying too much risk investing in these smaller companies. And I think there's another myth around, well, if banks aren't lending to these companies, then surely the funds are exposing themselves to adverse selection. So I'm just taking those two points in turn. I think when we look at the risk Actually, the types of companies we're investing in aren't that small. I think if you look at our portfolio, the average EBDA of companies that we've invested in in the last 12 months is over 50 million euros. So, you know, we're talking about enterprise valuations of these companies of north of, of half a billion. So they're not small. And then if you think about how selective direct lending managers are in terms of the assets that they choose to invest in, we're picking companies in very defensive sectors, uh, non-cyclical, you know, financial services, healthcare, education, telecoms, et cetera. And actually, when you drill down and you look at the revenue growth, the profitability of these companies, th these are highly performing assets. You know, our companies are growing revenues double digit, EBDA margins are, you know, 20% plus and very, very cash generative. So 80 to 90% of EBDA, you know, is turning into to cash flow. So I think from a risk perspective, it is definitely manageable 
If you then link that to the types of structures we're investing in, I actually think that compensates a lot for that risk, i.e. we are firstly and senior secured in pretty much everything we do. We have financial covenants. You know, we have very, very good information flow and bilateral relationships with these companies so we can act quickly if things don't go to plan. So I think that mitigates a lot of the perceived credit risk that uh, the people perceive we're taking on these, these smaller or middle market companies. I think for, in terms of the, the adverse selection myth, the reality is banks would love to lend to these companies. And when we're competing for assets, we're still competing for the most part against a group of banks. But if you think about how hamstrung they are today in terms of balance sheet constraints, regulatory capital requirements to hold against these types of assets, and the fact that there's been a huge human capital and talent drain from the banks in this asset class, you know, it's no wonder the banks are finding it hard to compete with the funds. So I don't think it's an adverse selection issue at all. I think actually the funds now are becoming the first port of call for this type of investment, these types of lending, rather than, rather than the banks. Thanks, Mike. Ian, I promise I'll come back to you on, um, on funding valuations and, and how private debt might impact, um, impact your evaluation of the pension fund. Could, could you talk to me about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you know, we've, we've covered in some detail the potential attractiveness from the asset side. Um, I think the extent to which it impacts your, your measurement of the liabilities depends, I guess, crucially on the size of the investment um, that's, that you're thinking about making, uh, but also how it fits into your wider portfolio. I mean, I think, you know, in my mind, there's, there's sort of two ways this might be invested in. Firstly, you know, this may just be a small opportunistic investment providing diversification amongst uh, a wider, more traditional investment type strategy, for example, you know, gilt, bonds, equities. Um, and in that scenario, it may be that it, it doesn't fundamentally change your approach to measuring your liabilities. You may well still be funding on a sort of traditional gilt plus type model. Um, and yet in that scenario, you may, of course, see a, a benefit to your premium above gilts that you assume, reflecting the additional returns that we've spoken about so far. Um, but, it, but it may be that's you know, relatively constrained in terms of the impact. Um, I think, though, if we talk about more widely of private debt as part of a, a more material investment um, strategy that's kind of contractual income based, a bit like um, Chris alluded to, a sort of runoff portfolio type approach, um, then I think it could be a, a much bigger impact because it could trigger, for example, a move away from a traditional guilt plus type funding model, um, you know, and more towards something known as, as often known as asset led funding. So for asset led funding, um, the discount rate starting point is actually the underlying return you expect to get on your contractual uh, income portfolio, less a prudent margin reflecting the risks of you achieving that return in practice. So, for example, reinvestment risk, default risk. Um, but crucially, I think that detachment from guilt yields means that um, you know, you're actually better reflecting the assets you actually hold in the portfolio and the returns you're going to get. And that can ultimately lead to higher discount rates and more stable discount rates that will feed through into more stable funding uh, and so, so less volatility in your funding and we've actually helped a number of clients sort of see the attractiveness of that and move to that as an overall funding and investment strategy that's quite removed from the traditional approach uh, and brings that that beneficial stability i think the one other point i would make around scheme funding is just on um, the potential changes to the funding regime so you know as most people know there's potential changes coming over the next couple of years to the scheme funding regime 
at the moment there's some I think you know still quite a lot of uncertainty as to how things like private debt might be treated in that new regime um, you know and, and that may just change the balance of, of how we see this in future as that funding regimes and how it's perceived as part of an overall funding investment strategy um, but I do think it's important to say I don't think the tail should wag the dog here. You know, if ultimately this is a very thoughtful investment that is the right thing for the scheme, recognising the benefits we talked about, um, then I don't think, you know, thinking, second guessing what the new funding regime might look like doesn't seem the right approach to take. And actually, you know, it could still be a very sensible thing to think about putting into your portfolio. Thank you, Ian. And and, and to be clear, as, as a trustee, I'm, I'm very supportive of um, making sure that the investment strategy and, and evaluation is and the valuation of the liabilities are, are linked together because you know having a valuation measure that doesn't reflect what the strategy is actually trying to do can create um well create poor decision making frankly so and, and you're absolutely right we, we don't know precisely what the new funding regime is going to say but there is flexibility and there is sufficient flexibility to make sure that the tail doesn't wag the dog and actually, you said it spot on. If the strategy is appropriate, then you should be able to adjust the valuation approach and the funding approach to, to, to fit to that. So, no, that's that's really, really helpful. Thank you. Oh, Chris, I'm going to move over to the nitty gritty um, of implementation for a second, if, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, because I think I think trustees are re really keen to hear about this. How how do you go about implementing an asset class like like private debt and, and what are the key challenges? Yeah, as you say, a really important part of this is understanding how it works in practice and how, how clients might be able to move forward with an investment if that's what they wanted to do. I mean, I, I think the first point I'd make is that you know, right at the outset, an, an important thing to, to do is to stress the, the liquidity of the scheme's assets and, and different scenarios to make sure that we're not going to find ourselves in a position where we've not got sufficient liquidity. Uh, and that could be things like trust, uh, stress testing, a higher level of transfer value activity that, that would lead to more liquidity being needed, or, or things like rising gilt yields, which might impact the LDI portfolio that you have in place in terms of collateral requirements. So, uh, you know, most pension schemes, you know, understandably value liquidity. It's a kind of natural thing to do to want, want liquidity and know that you can get your money back at any point. But when, when we do this stress testing, you know, we normally find that there's, you know, a, at least a 5% allocation to something like private debt normally works for the majority of, of pension schemes. But, you know, there will always be some exceptions. And I think for clients that, that see buy-in on the horizon in the next couple of years, they, they might not wish to, to begin to tie up assets unless they can have some form of commitment that it could be taken on or, or, or potentially moved, um, moved as part of the transaction. Um, but a lot of pension schemes will find that they expect to run on the pension scheme for a number of years, perhaps whilst um, the non-pensioners become pensioners and buy-in pricing improves. And so for a lot of pension schemes, we're finding that, that it, uh, an allocation to private debt does work. So then if you reach the point where you're thinking about how do I, how do I implement private debt, uh, I think it's important to recognise, again, there are some challenges to, to kind of work through there. Uh, and it is more involved than simply deciding you want to invest in a corporate bond fund that's 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 open and um, uh, easily to easily added to. Um, and so, what are the sort of the things that we that we need to flag and, and think through in terms of planning uh, and the due diligence process? Firstly, I think we need to recognise that um, funds have uh, uh, fundraising cycles, and so we might like a particular manager, but they might not be in the market raising capital at a particular point in time. 
So we need to make sure there's high quality managers um, that are looking to take commitments from investors. Um, uh, and when I say high quality, you know, we mean in terms of their investment capabilities, but also as you alluded to the Dean, consistent ESG philosophy to what you expect from, from them. Um, the next thing to, to think about is, you know, clearly the key risk with, with lending to a company is that the credit risk. And so, you know, we think diversification is, is your friend um, here. Uh, and so when we talk about diversification, you know, we mean that in a, in a number of ways. So getting diversification across geographies, uh, across sectors, um, but potentially also across managers um, and having managers that will have different portfolios uh, that you can blend together. Um, and a key reason why we, we, we think it's important to have more than one manager is that, you know, and this isn't true for all managers, but often the, the portfolio size might be you know, 20 to 50 underlying loans. And so that'd be significantly lower than you'll have in say uh, uh, your corporate bond portfolio where there might be, you know, 100 plus companies um, uh, that you're lending to. Um, so we think it's, you know, it's really important that you avoid concentration risk in this asset class. You're clearly looking to earn the coupon and your interest and the kind of skewed downside is losing the money if the, if the company defaults. Um, there are also challenges around just building and maintaining the allocation. So um, you need to make sure that you have a plan with your advisors or, or the in-house team on how you'll manage things like capital calls. And so the, uh, the managers will ask for capital at different stages. It won't all be in one go. It'll be as and when they, they, they place the loans with the companies. Um, and so having a plan for how you're gonna raise the money, potentially at relatively short notice is, is really important. Um, and then also thinking to the longer term, you, you essentially want to think about developing a program for ongoing commitments. Um, each of these funds will have a, a life cycle, maybe five to eight years, um, but ultimately you, you'll get your money back from the fund and need to think about that reinvestment point. So potentially investing in a future, future vintage and keeping an eye on those, those fundraising, fundraising cycles. Uh, and so th there's plenty of options for trustees, probably is my final point in terms of uh, an advisory route uh, and different levels of dele delegation if you want assistance on things like implementation or, or picking managers. So all, all of those challenges are, are worth working through, but they're all, uh, you know, they can all be overcome uh, with lots of different solutions now in the market. Thanks, Chris. I, th I think those were really, really valuable tips and appreciate it. Just, just looking at the time, I think we've probably got time for, for a couple more questions. So, Michael, I had, Mike, I had one for you, if you don't mind. Um, you talked about the importance of having high quality within your private lending portfolio. Could, could you, a really obvious question, actually, could, could, could you give us a flavour for how COVID-19 um, impacted middle market companies, please? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I can only speak for, for, for Aries, uh, the Aries portfolio. But uh, look, as you, as you just said, you know, we, we are selective when we're choosing to invest in pretty defensive industries. You know, there's not a lot of retail, casual dining, automotive exposure, certainly in our portfolio, and, and not really across any of the, the European direct lenders that, that, that I know. So, so generally speaking, portfolios, I think, have, have, have performed well. Middle market companies have been good at managing their cost base. Uh, they've obviously taken government support where necessary for liquidity, uh, which has obviously been uh, forthcoming. Uh, and actually, when you think about it, you know, look, the first lockdown was was pretty significant. Around a third of our portfolio was forced to close. You know, the companies were forced to close because of government restrictions. Actually, when you look at 
lockdown two and lockdown three, this most recent lockdown, that number is a lot, lot, lot lower. So actually a lot of these companies are, you know, trading and, and trading uh, pretty, um, pretty well. And again, you know, you've got to look at performance in uh, respect of, of where we sit in the capital structure. So again, I'm talking from the perspective of a firstly and senior secured lender. You know, we often go into these assets at 50% loan to value. Uh, with covenants and security, et cetera. So, you know, as I alluded to, you know, five, 10 minutes ago, our portfolio has seen very little volatility during the course of 2020. So yeah, all in all, um, COVID obviously massive uh, humanitarian challenge, but, but as far as we're concerned, the asset class has performed pretty well. Great, thank you, Mike. Um, final question to you, Ian, if, if, if you don't mind. Um, you talk, we've talked about journey plans, we've talked about end games, um, whether those are buyouts or consolidators or, or, or self-sufficiency runoff. Thinking about insurers and consolidators in particular, how are private debt investments seen by, by those types of vehicles? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, on the insurer side, I mean, logically, you would think they'd be really attractive as investments for insurers in the sense of, you know, providing a contractual income, long-term investments with, you know, potentially good yields. Um, unfortunately, they are somewhat hamstrung by their, their reserving requirements. Um, so as a result, they're not currently attractive at all to insurers to be passed you know, directly over. Um, so again, going back to the point that Chris raised, I think if we think, it, and the journey planning talk I was talking about earlier, if you think that sort of full buyout is something that could be on your horizon in the sort of short to medium term, um, then that does present a, present a potential challenge. Um, consolidators, the story is a little bit different. They don't have the same um, reserving requirements. Uh, and as such, you know, they are, our, our conversations with consolidators have said they're much more flexible about the potential of taking on such uh, liquid assets in particular private debt. Um, so, you know, that's a real positive and might mean that actually it's not the same barrier to entering in into consolidators as it would be in entering into an uh, insurance transaction. That said, of course, um, you know, you will want to think about the appetite of the specific investments you might go into to specific consolidators because, you know, their appetite to take those assets off your hand will depend on exactly what they look and feel like under the covers. So, again, I think it's just about being cognizant of that upfront when you're thinking about the investment and perhaps here when you're shaping your specific funds, you're thinking about investing in just thinking about that likely um, consolidator appetite in the future if that's something that might be on your horizon. Listen, that's probably all we've got time for today. Uh, it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. So, so thank you, Mike, Ian and, and Chris for, for, for helping us to, to, to do this session. And um, to all the listeners, we'll see you at the next podcast. Take care. Bye.